This is NPR's Book of the Day. I'm Andrew Limbaugh. When the writer Lainey Zumas was pursuing in vitro fertilization, she started doing some research, and she came upon various fetal personhood movements in the United States. In her novel Red Clocks, Zumas imagines a world where these legal efforts pass, and she spoke with NPR's Scott Simon about the questions she was dealing with when writing it and about what it meant to be a mother. But first, with all the news right now about Texas and abortion rights, NPR's Michelle Martin spoke with the writer Joshua Prager about someone who's been so often lost in the debates over Roe v. Wade, the baby who is at the center of the trial. Prager's book is called The Family Row, an American Story. This message comes from NPR sponsor Progressive Insurance, where drivers who switch could save hundreds on car insurance. Get your quote at Progressive.com today. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. This message comes from NPR sponsor Noom. Noom understands that not everyone is starting from the same place and takes that into account. With their first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, you can find a hundred healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold. The Texas law that severely restricts access to abortion in that state has set off a furious round of public debate and private legal strategizing. But it is only the latest effort in a decades-long battle to overturn the landmark Supreme Court case legalizing most abortions, Roe v. Wade. That case has been a touchstone for both sides of the abortion issue since it was delivered nearly 50 years ago. And yet, for all the attention Roe v. Wade has received over the years, some facts about the case remain obscure to much of the public, such as the fact that the pregnancy at the Part of the legal dispute did not end with an abortion. A baby girl was born, and a few knew who or where she was. And after a series of disturbing encounters, she preferred to keep it that way. But now she's given journalist and author Joshua Prager permission to reveal her identity in his new book, The Family Row, An American Story. And Joshua Prager is with us now. Mr. Prager, welcome. Thank you so much for talking to us. Thank you for having me. So you've met her, and you tell her story now. Who is she? So her name is Shelley Lynn Thornton. She was born in June of 1970, um, a few months um, after Norma McCorvey filed Roe, and a few years before the case was decided. She was a toddler when Roe was decided in January of of 1973. She was raised by a woman uh, and a man who soon thereafter separated because of a drinking problem he had, and she was growing up as a pretty basic teenager, as she put it. She said she cared about dating and buying nice shoes and things like that when all of a sudden her life changed a few days before her 19th birthday because a tabloid sent an investigator to find her and then told her that they were going to publish their story whether she wanted them to or not. They did not name her, but all of a sudden her life had a before and an after. She was now tied to Roe and to Norma. She had grown up in a home that was against abortion and she also now felt that she was carrying an enormous secret that, as she put it, whenever she met someone, they didn't quite know exactly who she was. So what about Norma McCorvey? I mean, Shelley's mother. I mean, she is such a complicated figure. How How do you even think about Norma McCorvey? Well, Norma was a very complicated person. Norma was conflicted about abortion. On the one hand, You know, she felt that a woman ought to have the right to choose. On the other hand, she was raised in a very religious home, and she was told that this is absolutely forbidden. And 
even as she was proud as the years went by of her role in Roe, she was ambivalent about it. And even a greater reason why she then left the pro-choice for the pro-life movement was that she didn't feel that she had a seat at the table in the pro-choice movement. She wasn't exactly the greatest representation for her movement. They, you know, she, she was an unstable and unreliable witness. She, she lied all the time. And she wasn't often invited to the press conferences and the book parties and, and the rallies. And she became, she came to resent that. But at the end of her life, she really felt that she didn't have a place in either movement. And she pushed it all away and she wanted it known that she had never had an abortion. She wanted everyone to know that she'd actually had three children. Well, the other aspect of the story, I mean, you, you describe these sort of big feelings mm-hmm. and, and particularly how so many women have been, how can we put this, captive of forces beyond their choice and control, yeah. right? Yeah. But one of the points you make in the book is that this kind of extended to Shelley. There was this ongoing effort to use her. Yeah for various people's purposes, including her mother's purposes. A- Absolutely. And how, how does she think about that now? So she came to realize a few days before she was 19, when she was alerted to who her biological mother was, that people saw her as a symbol. Um, it was the National Enquirer that sort of tracked her down. And the investigator and the reporter said, you know, the pro-life community wants to show you off as a happy, living, healthy individual. And she wanted no part of that. She was actually sort of conflicted herself, much like her biological mother. Um, She had an unwanted pregnancy herself a few years later before she was married. And she felt that abortion, as she put it, was not part of who I am. And she didn't have an abortion. She believed that a woman should have the right to choose. So that experience... um, sort of deepened her thinking on it as as one would imagine it would. And most importantly, though, she wanted no part, as I say, of what the pro-life saw in her, this symbol, as somebody who who embodied their, their argument against abortion, someone who was the incarnation of that argument. If anything, she told me, she represented what it is to be born unwanted. Mm-hmm. Um, of course, while there are tens of millions of children who are sadly born unwanted, only her conception had led um, to Roe. And so she carried a burden that was really unique. You call it an American story. You're, the title of yeah. your book is The Family Roe, an American yeah. story. Why do you say that? Well, the family really refers here to two different families. There's the family that Norma had, Norma, a broken family, Norma and her, and her three, and the three children she relinquished to adoption. But then there's also the much larger family, as I see it, the tens of millions of people who aren't, who are on either side of this issue. And what's fascinating to me is that Norma was the only thing that the pro-choice and the pro-life sort of had in common because she'd started off on one side and gone to the other. And what I tried to do was tell the larger story through the smaller story. And as I say, you know, Norma's family, her immediate family was sort of rent and riven by the incompatibility as she saw it of sex and religion. And that is the exact same thing in my mind that has brought America apart, pulled America apart on this issue. And so by humanizing the issue, by enabling people to look at abortion, not through politics, but people, I tried to sort of shine a light on how America got to this sad point. Well, you know, the timing is remarkable. I mean, after 10 years of working on this project, your book arrives at the very moment that the Supreme Court will soon hear a case that may well determine the fate of Roe. And I, I can't help but 
ask, if, if, if you feel comfortable saying, what is, does Shelley and her, perhaps even her sisters, Norma McCorvey's daughter, um, does she have thoughts about that? They do. Um, all three of Norma's daughters spoke to me about the fact that they do believe in a woman's right to choose, even if they themselves had never felt comfortable to have an abortion. And it's not only that Shelley does believe that abortion ought to be legal. She also wants people to know, as she puts it, that she is not a symbol for one side of this issue. She is her own person, distinct and apart from Roe and abortion. That was Joshua Prager, author of The Family Roe, An American Story. You can read an excerpt from the book in The Atlantic. Joshua Prager, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. This message comes from NPR sponsor Hulu with Black Twitter, A People's History, from Onyx Collective and Hulu. Directed by Prentice Penny, Black Twitter, A People's History, tells the story of how Black voices found a new home online and blossomed into a force for change while laying down some hilarious tweets along the way. From the memes to the movements, see how this powerful community shapes culture, society, and politics. Black Twitter, A People's History, premieres May 9th, streaming on Hulu. The way Shelley doesn't want to be used as a symbol for either side of the abortion debate, Lainey Zumas brings that same complexity to the characters of her novel, Red Clocks. Here she is from a 2018 interview with NPR's Scott Simon. The novel, Red Clocks, imagines a time in which something called the personhood amendment has made abortion and in vitro fertilization a crime in the United States, and Canada returns women who slip across the border to seek one. It's a novel set in an alternate reality of an Oregon town near the border that invites inevitable comparison with Margaret Atwood's The Handmaid's Tale. Is it also a parable for our times? Red Clocks is by Lainey Zumas. Her fiction has appeared in numerous literary magazines and has been acclaimed for her exquisite wordplay. She's also an associate professor of English at Portland State University and joins us from the studios of Oregon Public Broadcasting. Thanks so much for being with us. Thank you, Scott. You must have begun this novel more than a year ago, uh, before the last inauguration. So what put the story in your mind? Yeah, I started writing it around 2010. Uh, It started from some personal anxiety and anguish of my own. I was dealing with infertility and really wanted to get pregnant and wasn't able to. And I had a lot of questions about why I wanted to become a mother, um, what it meant to be a mother, what it meant to be fertile or infertile. And when I was starting to pursue in vitro fertilization and doing some research about it, I started to come upon something called the personhood amendment and various fetal personhood movements in the United States, people who wanted to make it a crime to uh, do anything to a single-celled zygote. And um, so that was something that really fueled my curiosity and, frankly, my anger. And so it started out personal, and it really expanded to be about the political future of our country. You've intertwined the stories of four or five women here. And um, I'll just mention a few. Roberta Aro, a teacher who wants a child on her own. Her best student, Maddie, who becomes known in the narrative as the daughter. She's 16 
and pregnant, decides to run for the border. A previously unheralded polar explorer named, I can't pronounce her name. <laughs> I say it as Iver Minerva Dater, but I don't speak Faroese, so I'm probably butchering it. <laughs> well, somebody in our audience undoubtedly will let us know that if you butchered it. I, I want to read something that uh, is written in her voice. We woke to the flows rafting up around the ship. Massive blue-white shelves thrust vertically by wind and tide jumped roaring out of the water and smashed at the keel. To my knowledge, I may now add the sound ice makes when it destroys a ship. Booming gun cracks, then a smaller yelping. I looked up this explorer because I found those passages so compelling. <laughs> Imagine my I'm amazement glad. to find out it's it's all your fiction, isn't it? I happen to be a person who has long been obsessed with polar exploration and, and maritime adventure. And so that's what I imported when I was imagining um, this woman from the Faroe Islands who gets aboard these ships by pretending she's a boy and, and teaches herself polar hydrology. I have to share with you, there was a phrase that startled me a little. At one point, the 16-year-old, the daughter, who becomes pregnant, refers to, to what I'll refer to the entity inside of her as the clump. Yeah. I'll ask because it is your character. Does she do that to distance herself or, or what? That's a good question. I, I think that she does want to distance herself. Um, but she's she doesn't know what she's doing. You know, she's... She hasn't quite turned 16, and she herself is adopted, which makes her decision to seek an abortion more complicated. Can you see how even some people who believe in abortion rights just might find a phrase like the clump to be a euphemism that aggravates them? Yes, I can. Um, and I hope that that aggravation starts a conversation, you know, or or contributes to a conversation that's obviously already happening. As you may know, there are couples that go through IVF and they and they see something flickering on that screen and and begin to feel very deeply about it. It suddenly, mm. if you will, it's not a clump to them. It becomes something with living properties. Mm. I think that's where the complexity lies in this conversation that you know, I remember when I got the call that I was pregnant after many, many tries, and certainly I wasn't using the word clump to myself, but that doesn't mean that a 15-and-a-half-year-old doesn't get to use that word for herself. How do you feel about uh, comparisons to The Handmaid's Tale? Oh, wait, as soon as I hear myself utter that question, I'm thinking, what's wrong with that? <laughs> How could that possibly hurt? <laughs> but, but go uh, ahead, please. I've admired Margaret Atwood um, for a really long time, and um, I love her work. And I think our books are, are very different in the sense that um, in The Handmaid's Tale, she's created such a spectacular and drastic world um, that does draw on elements of, of historical fact, but which is really so separate from our own world, whereas I think that the world of red clocks could frankly happen next week. Lainey Zumas, her novel, Red Clocks. Thanks so much for being with us. Thank you, Scott. It was a pleasure. 
That's it for this week. I'm Andrew Limbong. Thanks for listening. NPR's Book of the Day is produced by Megan Lim, edited by Petra Mayer, Megan Sullivan, and Taylor Burney. The show elements this week were produced and edited by Noah Caldwell, Ashley Brown, Daniel Hensel, Dee Parvaz, Avery Keatley, Scott Salloway, Emma Peasley, Ed McNulty, William Troop, David Guthers, and Robert Baldwin III. Our managing editor is Beth Donovan. Thanks again, and happy reading. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Homes.com. When you're shopping for a home, you want to know as much about the area around it as possible. Homes.com has got you covered with a comprehensive neighborhood guide from local experts. Homes.com. We've done your homework. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Capella University. With Capella's FlexPath learning format, you can earn your degree online at your own pace and get support from people who care about your success. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. This message comes from The New Yorker. What makes a short story work? Explore the minds of writers like Otessa Moshfag and George Saunders on The New Yorker Fiction Podcast to find out. Listen to The New Yorker Fiction Podcast wherever you get your podcasts.